power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that, that you would help him as he speaks, that he might speak with power and authority. I pray that, that he might speak with clarity. Lord, I pray that, that the words that he says today will pierce our hearts and cause us to be closer to you when we leave this place than we were when we walked in. Lord, we pray these things in the name above all names. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You can be seated. So there were two brothers, young boys, actually, and their parents died, and they went into the foster system, and, and the foster system held on to them, looking to get them adopted where they could stay together. And a, a young couple came along, and they adopted both of them. So these two young boys, they went home to live with these new adopted parents after having lost their real parents. And after they had been with their new adopted parents for about a year or a year and a half, the older brother, who was about eight years old, was in some sort of an accident on the playground at school, and they took him to the small uh, country hospital, more of a clinic, in this small place where they lived, and the mom and dad, the adoptive mom and dad, rushed there and brought the, the little brother with him. And the doctor said, he's not seriously injured, this is not really a problem, but we need to give him some blood, he's got a really rare blood type. So we need to find, we just don't have that blood type here in this small country clinic. We're calling the city and we got a bunch of hospitals there. We will find a donor, but if we can find one here in town, that would be just a little bit better, a little bit faster. And the adoptive dad says his little brother has the same blood type. And the doctor says that would be great because with, the, with some of the little brother's blood, and with some plasma, that will get us as far as we need to get until we get back to these hospitals from the city. We'll get some donors out here. We'll get some blood out of here. That will be just perfect. And so the adoptive dad says, well, let me, let me talk to him and, and explain this. So the adoptive dad sits down, this little, like, four-year-old boy, and says, we need to take some of your blood to help your older brother because he has been hurt. Will you give us some of your blood for your brother? And so the, the little boy just kind of says, are, are they going to use a needle? And the, the dad says, yes, they are. You know, he doesn't want to lie to him. Yes, they're going to use a needle. Yes, it's going to hurt a little bit. And it's going to be sore afterwards. But you are the only person that has the kind of blood that your brother needs right now, right here. And so the little boy climbed up on the table and said, I'll do it. So the nurse came in and the nurse put the needle in the arm and the nurse took some of the blood and the nurse put the bandage on and the nurse left. And then as the father is sitting there with the little four-year-old boy, the little four-year-old boy looks up at him and says, how long until I die? And the adoptive dad realizes that he didn't explain it as well as he should have. And this little four-year-old boy thought he was being asked to give his life to save his brother. And with just a slight moment of hesitation, that little four-year-old boy climbed up on that table, willing to give his life so that his older brother could live. So, yeah, happy Valentine's Day. What a, what a kind of a cheerful way to start, right? 
But we are talking this morning about love. And the pastor and I always say that it's a good thing that God is smarter than, than, than we are. Because we didn't plan to talk about love on Valentine's Day. In fact, this sermon was lined up on the calendar for many weeks before either of us really realized, hey, the 14th of February happens to be Valentine's Day, doesn't it? So that's just kind of the way it worked out, but that's not a coincidence. I believe God has done that. So what are the different kinds of love that there are? Those are, those are great answers. I'm not necessarily looking for answers quite that deep, but that's good. William went deep right away. <laughs> Brotherly love. Love between siblings. That is a good one. What's another kind of a love? Sam, it's a good, it's Valentine's Day. It's a good thing you got that one, brother. The love a husband should have for a wife. The love a wife should have for her husband. That kind of romantic love. Maternal and paternal, the love that parents have for their children. The love that children have for their parents, which you'd think it would be kind of the same, and it kind of is, but it's often very different because the, the, the children don't have the stress that the parents have as they love their children through raising them and turning them into adults. The, the kids don't get that stress until they're older and then they're taking care of their parents as their parents age, then they begin to get some of that payback, and often the elderly parents enjoy that. <laughs> I know my parents are enjoying that an awful lot. How about the love between friends? Very different than the romantic love, very different even than the family love. But still, it could be a very powerful bond. What about the, the love that we have for the things that we own? And I don't mean that in some sort of, of ungodly, sinful way, but don't we kind of like some of our stuff? I mean, isn't that kind of the reason that we bought some of the stuff we have, that we like it? We like our couch, we like our television, we like our cell phone, we like some of these creature comforts that we, that we have purchased. What about the stuff that we don't own but we still love? Going to the ball game, going to the movies. Maybe a, a favorite TV show. You don't own it, but you sure enjoy it. And that's, that's love. I mean, that's very different than a romantic love or a love you have for your parent. But that still can be a form of love, right? And in most love relationships, there is a, there's both a cost and a reward, isn't there? What's the cost of parental love? Well, Mom over there says your sanity. And I don't think we can top that answer. But your sanity, stress, your time, your worry, your your energy. You go to bed tired every once in a while, maybe sometimes. Yeah, every night, every afternoon, every morning, if you could. What's the what's the cost of of a loving relationship with a spouse? Is there a cost there? Turn carefully, guys. This is Valentine's Day. We've made it this far. We know it's Valentine's Day. Let's not mess it up sitting in church. But isn't there a cost to that? You have to give. You, you have to give. And it's going to cost you something of yours. Now, you hopefully get some sort of reward out of that. 
Hopefully that person loves you back and they are giving to you as well. Same with hopefully being a parent is rewarding. They are, are giving to you something besides the insanity and the stress. They're giving a little bit. So there is a cost, there is a reward to most relationships. This morning, I want to talk about a, a, the unconditional love of God, the sacrificial love of God, where cost is still involved, but the rules of cost have sort of changed. Now, cost is important. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, if you wanted to build a building, you would first sit down and decide how much it would cost. You must see if you have enough money to finish the job. If you don't do that, you might begin the work, but you would not be able to finish it. And if you could not finish it, everyone would laugh at you. They would say, this man began to build, but he was not able to finish. Jesus talks about counting the cost before you begin some sort of a project. And he wasn't giving home maintenance advice when he talked about this, although that is the analogy he used because people then and people today, we can, we can kind of identify with the, the cost of building something, of buying something. You, you have to have enough money to finish it. The, the down payment on the car isn't enough or they'll come and get the car. The down payment on the house isn't enough or the bank's going to show up and change the locks. You've got to know the cost before you begin a project. And don't we, don't we do that? Not just with our relationships, but with everything in life. How many of us would like to, to be a little bit more biblical in our day-to-day -day dealing? I've got good news for you. This is a biblical principle that we all apply all the time, every day. Even people out there who never go to church apply this. We count the cost of opportunities. I call Sam. Sam, you want to go to the football game? Sam starts figuring out, well, what's, what is this going to cost me? And if I say, well, Sam, I'm going to buy your ticket and I'm going to buy your dinner. I'll pick you up. All you got to do is ride along. Sam says, well, this isn't going to cost me anything but my time. And the reward is I get to see a football game and I get to have a meal. On Mark. It's a good deal. <laughs> if I say, Sam, I need somebody to come dig a big hole in my yard and clean out my septic tank. And Sam's going to say, well, let me count the cost. i got to go get a shovel, and i got to go over to Mark's house, and I've got to start digging. Yeah, and I think I'm going to pass up this opportunity, because it's going to cost a lot more than the reward. We, don't we do that every day with every opportunity? We kind of, what's the, what's the cost? What's the reward? Well, the, the love that, that Jesus has takes that spend and that gift formula, and and tweaks it and changes it, doesn't throw it out the window, it's still there. But we are going to discover together this morning, I want to look in the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 15 specifically, that what Jesus claimed was the kind of love that we should be having in our lives. This is a part of our One Another sermon series, where we are talking about all the different things that were told us in the New Testament about how we should treat one another. And this is Jesus giving us a great example of how we should treat one another. Uh, verses 11 and 12, and I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verse 13 as well, but 11 and 12 are the focus. John 15, 11 and 12. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command, 
Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. This seems like a very simple formula. Now, like a lot of things that, that Jesus tells us, simple, but hard to do. It's very simple. Love everybody the way I loved you. That's how you do life. Well, that's, that's not very complicated, but it sure is awful hard to do, isn't it? He talks about joy in that passage, that your joy may be complete, that your joy, some translations say that your joy may be fully mature. So what is the difference between joy and happiness? And I know we know this because we've talked about it several times, but what's the difference between joy and happiness? One is circumstantial and one is almost a lifestyle, right? If I come up and give you a hamburger, that's kind of a circumstantial, hey, I like hamburgers, I'm happy now, I've got something to eat. But, but that hamburger's not going to continue to make you happy all day long, all week long, all month long, all year long. But if I come up to you and I say, you know, you encourage me, I love you. Well, those words may sustain you a little longer than the hamburger, that's still not going to sustain you forever and ever and ever and ever. Joy is when you are able to find the good in a situation and you are able to critically think about what is the benefit. You're counting the cost. The joy of parenthood. Counting the cost means it comes with a lot of anxiety and stress and lack of sleep, but you are able to find the joy and you are able to determine that the joy outweighs some of the negatives. Same, hopefully, with your romantic relationship with your spouse. You find that the long-term joy, the long-term benefit, outweighs what it costs you. At least, hopefully. So that's the difference between joy and happiness. Joy is an ability to count the cost and find the good, even when you acknowledge that things aren't perfect, and happiness, and we all experience both. Happiness is just kind of that, that momentary perfect moment. But it's just perfect for a moment, and then it's gone. Your football team may win. Your football team winning a game may be perfect, and that Sunday afternoon as you sit in the recliner yelling and cheering, but that is not going to sustain you forever and ever and ever and ever. I was raised as a Cleveland sports fan, so I know that one victory is not going to sustain you forever because next week they might not win. Why not? Next week they're probably not going to win. In fact, you better savor this one because it might be, might be a couple of years till there's another one. But, but we're not talking about despair this morning. We're talking about love. Jesus is declaring that the key to doing life as a believer, he's talking to believers, the key to doing life as a believer is to find joy. The key to finding joy is to love people the way he loved people. And the key to loving people the way he loved people is to love sacrificially. Some will declare that loving sacrificially means that you love without counting the cost. Now, I don't think that's true. I think you can give without worrying about the cost. Somebody asks you for a nickel, well, you might have so many dollar bills in your wallet that you can give a nickel away without even counting the dollar bills. Sometimes we can give without counting the cost. 
But I don't think that sacrifice means you're not aware of the cost. I think that sacrifice means you are absolutely aware of the cost and you give anyways. I think that's what true parenting is. You recognize the cost and you do it anyways. That's what true love in a relationship is. You recognize the cost and you do it anyways. That is what a job is. You recognize the benefit of the paycheck, but you recognize what it costs you, but you do it anyways. You follow your commitment and show up to work. It's not really a sacrifice if we don't acknowledge some sort of loss in it. So I don't think that sacrificial love means that we're unaware of the cost. I think it makes us very aware of the cost when we do it anyways. Remember the story I shared just a few minutes ago about the little boy. He didn't understand, but he thought the cost was going to be his life. He was very aware. He was wrong, but he was very aware that he was about to die. And he climbed up on that table anyways and held his arm out to that nurse. That's sacrifice. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. That is verse 11. And I love the, the message translation. I don't read out of the message translation a lot. I don't endorse the message translation. I think there's an awful lot that, that is missed in that translation. But I like it as a supplement to my own reading, to my own study, just because it words things in a very simple way, which really speaks to me as a very simple person. It, it really sometimes helps my understanding. It helps me see what I'm studying in a different way. The, the message translation of that says, I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy, and your joy completely mature. But when something is mature, that means it's ready, right? I mean, when a, when a farmer talks about the, the, the cattle are mature, they're ready. We can send them off to the slaughter and, and, and have beef and make our profit. When, when somebody is growing something, they say, my garden is maturing. We're getting ready to pick stuff so that we can eat it, so that we can can it, so that we can use it. When we look at a young person and we say, they are mature. They are ready to function as an adult. They're, they're, they're ready. When we look at a young child, sometimes we look at older teenagers. Sometimes we look at young adults and we say, they're not mature yet. They're not ready. Sometimes you can be 40 years old and you're not ready yet. But we look at the word mature means that it's ready. I want your joy to be wholly mature. I want your joy to be ready. Because just a little bit further in John, before this chapter of John that I'm preaching out of is over, he's going to talk about persecution. He's going to talk about hard times that are going to come into your life. I look around this room, we all know hard times are going to come into our life. Some of us have had hard times. All of us know there's going to be hard times again. Doesn't mean we're happy about it. Doesn't mean we're excited about it. Most of us dread it, but we know it's coming. 
Something rough is going to happen. Hopefully it takes a lot of years, and it's not really rough when it gets here. But we are all aware that something is coming, and, and Jesus talks about that, but he talks about your joy being mature because that is what is going to sustain you when life gets hard. Nothing is more frustrating to me as a, as a pastor than somebody who is on fire for God. And they are so excited about all the great things that God can do in their life and has done in their life. And they've got this just great, I just can't wait. And I'm going to go into the ministry and I'm going to do all these great things. And then as soon as life gets hard, they're kicking chairs and they're cursing God. And they're done with their faith because their joy wasn't mature and they weren't ready for those hard times. They were just ready for God to do good things. They weren't ready for bad things to happen. This is my command. He follows up this thing, get your joy ready to use. He follows it up with, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. In the message it says, this is the very best way to love. Love one another the way I love you. The best way. This is what he is saying. All that other kind of love we talked about, there's nothing wrong with that. But he is saying that the very best kind of love is the kind of love that he showed. That sacrificial love. Now, let me ask, do we need a sacrificial love in our life? Do we need a love? Do we need somebody who's willing to give more than they're willing to take? Most of us would answer, not only do we need that sometimes, don't we want that? Don't you want people around you that are going to give you more than they're going to take from you? We need that, right? Well, Jesus is saying, love as I have loved, and I love in that sacrificial way. And we all need that because we all fall short of who God wants us to be. We recognize that God in, in his perfectness cannot be near sin. Now one of, the, one, of the, one of the questions that I get from young people all the time, teenagers, children, and, and even older adults that I work with, the question I get all the time is, how could a loving God allow somebody to go to hell? I mean, if he loves me, why would he let me go to hell? If he loves me, why wouldn't he just want me to do what I want to do and be happy? If he loves me, how can he allow me to stub my toe? Because I didn't enjoy that. Well, the, the reality is, the way Jesus is, he cannot be near sin. It is in his, his character, his, his DNA, his, his basic building block of who he is, he cannot be in near sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin any more than you can breathe underwater. It's just a cannot do. He cannot be near sin. He created us, and he loves us. And he loves us so much, he gave us free will. Boy, he could have saved himself a whole lot of problem with the humans if he didn't give us that free will. If we just had to love him. And had to do what was right every single time. But we don't have that. We've got this free will, and we have a sin nature, and we are drawn to sin. Aren't we? I mean, some of us have been drawn to sin already this morning. A couple of times. 
Some of us haven't been drawn to sin yet, but the day is young. We'll get there before it's over. He can't be near sin. In the Old Testament, they had this sacrificial system where when you sinned, you could no longer be in the presence of God. When God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, that was before they sinned. Once they sinned, he was done walking in the garden with them. They hid from him because they knew they couldn't be near him because they had sinned. So they had this sacrificial system where once I have sinned and I can't be in the presence of God, I have got to, to use some pure blood. I've got to sacrifice an animal. I've got to spill innocent blood to make up for my corruption and my sin. And then that innocent blood would, would cure me of sin until the next time I sin. I'm glad we don't have that system anymore because there'd be no animals left on the planet. Because we just, we just can't help but sin, right? Over and over again. So he had this system where if you sin, you can't be near him. And it doesn't matter how hard you try not to sin. It doesn't matter how good you are. Bless you. I, just, I didn't want to be left out of way also. I need all the blessings I can And I think most of us, we would consider ourselves to be good people. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, I would hope that on a worldly, earthly scale, I hope my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff. I, I honestly think it, it probably does. Probably. And I think that's probably true for most of us. Most of us. I know a lot of you. You're pretty good people. But, don't laugh, Sam. I, I like you. I know you and I like you anyways. <laughs> Thank you. You don't know me very well. <laughs> but we've all sinned. And we may not do like the murder sin, the big sin that's going to make the 6 o'clock news, but how many people in here lie? I mean, have you ever told a lie to get out of trouble? Or have you ever told a lie to stay out of trouble? Have you ever, have you ever just exaggerated just a little bit, just make yourself look a little bit better? Did you ever exaggerate just a little bit to make somebody else look a little bit worse so that you continue to look good? Have you ever done that? Most of us have, have done that. All of us have some sort of sin. Have you ever, you never really hurt anybody because you were angry? But did you ever look at somebody and think, boy, it'd be kind of fun to hurt them because I'm really angry at them. <laughs> did, you, did you ever think that? Did you ever look at, at somebody with, with lust that you weren't married to? Did you ever cross a line in your mind? You, you didn't do it. You didn't act on it. But did you ever cross that line thinking about it? Well, Scripture tells us that if it's in your heart, you did it. None of us are pure to be in the presence of God. We all need that, that sacrifice to get there. Well, God decided that what's going to get there is he sent his son, Jesus. And, and his son, Jesus, came, God came to earth and lived as a man. And he lived as a man. He wasn't God walking around disguised as a man. He lived as a man. He was a man. Stubbed his toe and hurt it just like the rest of us. Too much time in the sun and he got hot just like the rest of us. 
Didn't have enough clothes on and the wind kicked up and he got cold just like the rest of us. Too long without food, he got hungry. Too long without something to drink, he got thirsty. He was human. Not disguised as human, he was human. And he was to be the living sacrifice for our sins. Now that was the plan from the beginning. He didn't come down here to be a good guy and to minister. And then it's not like he and God had a staff meeting at some point and said, you know, I've been preaching for all these years and, and it's, it's not really getting it done. So I think I need to take this ministry to my next level about a, a crucifixion. The plan from the beginning was for him to be the sacrifice. That wasn't something that they came up with because the plan wasn't working. That was the plan. Amen. And so he came to do that. Now, he counted the cost. If you know the Easter story, in the garden the night before, he prayed, let this cup pass for me. And, and what that means is when they sat to eat all around the table, they all shared one cup. And, and you take a drink out of the cup and you pass it to the next person. And hopefully you didn't get thirsty until the cup came back around again. And hopefully the guy handing it to you wasn't thirstier than you were, because then the cup would be empty. Hopefully he didn't have a cold either. But they, they shared that cup, and the cup went around, and it passed to everybody. And so that common expression about your turn with the cup, he's praying, God, can we, can we pass that on by me? Can that just kind of skip over me, this crucifixion plan? Could we do something else? Could we try it another way? Maybe I can just preach more. Maybe I can just preach louder. I'll climb up on a higher rock so more people can see me. Could we come up with something else? Can this cup pass? He had counted the cost and he knew what the crucifixion was going to be like and he didn't want to do it. But right after that prayer, they showed up to arrest him and he went. It's like that little boy climbing up on that table. He counted the cost and he knew what was going to happen and he did it anyways. And the, the death on the cross, I mean, they, they beat him first, a beating that many people couldn't live through. They beat him first. The beating was often to save the cost and the time of the crucifixion because a lot of people would die from the beating. But he lived through the beating. They put a crown of thorns on his head. And then they mocked him, and then they made him carry his cross. After beating him, they made him carry his cross through town, up a hill, and then when he got to the top of it, they nailed his feet to this little platform on the cross that sits at an, at an angle like this that his feet could not possibly have, have had any grip on. The only way his feet had grip of that little platform was because the nail that was driven through the skin, through the bones, and into the platform, that was, that was the purchase he had. And then they stretched his arms out, and, and biblical scholars are, are not really settled on whether they drove a nail through his hand and through the bones, or through the arm, between the two bones and the arm. But either way, they nailed his arms, nailed his hands back behind him, which stretched him, and then back up over his head, over his head, and behind him, if you put your arms up and behind yourself, you can't breathe, not for very long. And that's what they did to him. 
They nailed him down while the cross is laying on the ground, and then the cross, this one here, is not really to scale because the bottom goes a lot longer because just like when you dig a hole to put a fence post in, they put the cross down in this hole and just let it drop. And that a lot of times would dislocate somebody's shoulders. That was a way they would they would gauge whether the guy putting the, putting the nails through the wood had done a good enough job because sometimes the body would just come right off of the cross, leaving hands and arms and feet behind if they weren't nailed in properly. And so he's, he's up on the cross, his arms behind him, back up ahead of him. He died of, of actually suffocation is what you often die of because he would have to, to push up using that nail in his feet, push up so he could get a breath, and then when his legs and his feet were in such pain, he would have to settle back down and let his, his hands take the pain. And he dies of crucifixion because he can't breathe when he's like this, so he has to keep pushing himself up to get a, to get a breath, and then eventually that's too painful, and he's got to settle back down. Towards the end of the crucifixion, they would crucify people in the morning, and then in the afternoon, they would often go along and break the legs of anybody that was still alive because that would they could no longer push themselves up and then that would just kind of speed up the process of them dying. And the scripture tells us when they came along to break his legs, they didn't break them because he had already died. Probably because of the beating he had had earlier, the physical exhaustion when this process even started. He counted the cost of all of that. And he did that anyways. That is sacrificial love. He knew what it was going to cost him, and he did that. And I just can't get past that without saying that if you don't know that Jesus did that for you, you are sitting here this morning, and you are not sure that you are going to heaven. Because that is why he did that. Because he spilled his blood in that final sacrifice so that you can go to heaven. If you accept what he did on the cross, you get to go to heaven. You get to be in the presence of God, even with your sin, because his blood covers up your sin if you accept his blood. If you are sitting here this morning and you have not made that decision, if you don't know that, if you don't know for sure that you are going to heaven, I beg you to fix that this morning. In fact, everybody close your eyes really quick. We usually don't do this here because, because we just don't. But if you don't know for sure that you are going to heaven, I'd like you to do a, the first easy favor for me. Just raise your hand really quick so I know who to pray for in the room. And then the second favor I am going to ask you is if you have raised your hand, I would like everybody's eyes are closed. Nobody's looking at you. My eyes are open, but I'll look down at my feet, I promise. Nobody's looking at you. If you raise your hand, I would like you to, to join our pastor in the back, and he'd love to talk to you for a few minutes. And there, was, there, were, there were some hands that went up. I would like you to just bravely, and boy, this is a sacrifice. I'm asking you to sacrifice. Go and join our pastor in the back. Our pastor would love to spend some time talking to you about this. And there he is. He's in the back. He's ready. He's not even eating a donut. And you can, you can open your eyes. If you do know that you are going to heaven, 
As we have talked about before, you haven't crossed the finish line, you're on the clock. So if you're in here and you know Jesus, this is part of being on the clock. This idea of, of sacrificially loving the world around you. We haven't gone through a lot of scriptures this morning and we're almost done. But that's because I think this one is so powerful. Love as I have loved you. Love one another, or one another apart. Love one another as I have loved you. Love the way that I loved. Love each other sacrificially. In fact, love the world sacrificially. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't hang up there and say, you know, James, James was my guy. My, my apostle James was always right there with me. I'm doing this for him. My mother has always supported my ministry. I'm doing this for her. But that guy Peter denied me last night. Sorry, Peter, you're not on the list. And you, you were laughing at me a little bit ago. You're not on the list. And you, you're not a part of this because I'm really God and I know what you were thinking. And you're not a, no, he didn't. He hung on the cross for everybody. Everybody. In fact, he begged God to forgive the people that hung him up there. He said to the thief hanging on the cross next to him, the thief that deserved crucifixion, he said to him, today you are going to be with me in paradise. Today you're going to be in heaven with me. Today, a sinner bad enough to get crucified, you're going to be with God today. Sin free because of this. He counted the cost and he did that anyways. And I get so frustrated with Christians if we start, we know Jesus and we understand this and we keep putting our faith in other things. I'm going to get a job and I'm going to work myself to the point where I can take care of my family and that's going to be good enough. I am going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put my faith in, in politicians and I'm going to vote for people that are going to make this country the way it, it used to be or the way it ought to be or the way I want it to be and, and, and Jesus didn't say look if you really want to take care of each other vote for the right people if you really want to take care of each other work hard at your job if you really want to take care of each other raise your kids to be good people if you really want to take care of each other Go to church every Sunday. If you really want to take care of each other, do a bunch of Bible study. If you really want to take care of each other, do a bunch of good deeds. He said, if you really want to take care of each other, love one another sacrificially the way I have loved you. If you want marriages in our culture to be better, if you want marriages of people you know to be better, love them sacrificially. If you want less abortion, love Young people sacrificially. I always say, my wife and I have said for years, the best way that we can that we can be pro-life is to pour truth and love into children's ministry and student ministry so that we can raise teenagers to become believers who make good choices for themselves and for all the people around them. That is the most pro-life thing I believe that I can do. Because the once a year or twice a year that I get to vote, that's not going to fix as much as loving people. And I'm not against voting, but I am in favor of loving people sacrificially. If you want less lost people in our community, then we've got to love them sacrificially. Because they're not going to get saved 
as we just drive past them. But they're going to come to know Christ if we love them and make a sacrifice. And you know, we've got that as we look around the room. Our church has a running start on this that I absolutely adore. The amount of sacrificial love that Brother Tom and his wife give up at, at Lake Area Ministries. Most of us know that he spends time up there. A lot of us have been up there with him. But very few of us understand the depth of his love for that ministry. Most people in this room have been helped by Brother Charles, but we don't understand the depth of his commitment to helping people. He'll tell you he's retired, but he's not retired because he's busier than most people I know with a job. Ten out of ten times that I have called him to help me with something, he has answered his phone while he's at somebody's house helping them with something. Ten out of ten times. The ministry that Brother Sam has at the prison. Count the cost. That's not an easy ministry to do. But he loves sacrificially while he was there. Talking to Brother James, I know Brother James feels about social media the way I do. Brother James does not like social media. If you are on Facebook and you are not friends with Brother James, you need to be. Because Brother James posts these insights about what God has done in his life, and he would be the first one in the room to say, well, it's no big deal. I'm just kind of sharing my thoughts. But I'm going to tell you, his thoughts encourage me on days that nothing else does. He doesn't even like social media. But he feels called by God to talk about God on social media. That's a sacrifice. And I usually don't lift up the names of specific teenagers, but just a couple weeks ago, young Zach, right here in this room, sacrificially loved somebody in this church in a way that sent me home to get on my knees and on my face because I was just so heartbroken is not the right word, just heart excited for the compassion that they, that young man has to, to give and to love and to help. And, and credit where it's due, he spends an awful lot of time with Brother Charles, who pours into his life, to cause an awful lot of that. But you know, if we had 100 young people like Zach in this community, Keystone Heights would be in the middle of a revival that, that, that we wouldn't even be able to fathom. Those are just the people that I know. It's just some of you. Some of you, I, I know your stuff. I don't have time to call it out. But you know, we, we talk about persecution is coming and, and, and hard times are coming. And I'm not a doom and gloom guy. I don't believe that we're going to be rounded up and put into Christian gulags anytime soon. I just don't think that is what is coming, at least not in our immediate future. But you never know. But I do believe that hard times are coming. In fact, they're already on a lot of corners of the world. We've got this night coming up with the, the video testimony of these three men that have been arrested for being Christians. As it gets harder to be a Christian in our culture, our primary way of sharing the gospel is going to be serving one another. It doesn't mean you're not going to have to talk about the gospel. It doesn't mean you're not going to have to use your words. But we're going to serve one another. We are going to love one another sacrificially. And that is going to be what reaches the world. 
We are past the point where we can have some sort of a revival service and just pack the house and a bunch of unsaved people are going to show up and hear the word of the Lord. That still might happen in some places once in a while. But we are going to have to go out into the world and love them sacrificially to get that to happen. We need to be prepared to live and love sacrificially. Now, maybe that means laying down your life. No greater love has this than somebody's willing to lay down his life for his brother. Jesus followed up this talk about loving one another as, as I have with that, with that scripture. Be ready to lay down your life. Maybe it won't come to that. Probably it won't come to that. I'm hopeful it's not going to come to that. I kind of like being alive. But what if you're called to give up some of your time? What if you are called to give up some of your comfort? What if you're called to give up your couch? What if you're called to give up your TV? What if you are called to live sacrificially so others can live eternally? We've got Lent coming up right around the corner here. We've never celebrated Lent at this church since I've been here. And Lent isn't a, a biblical concept so much as it's a religious concept about giving something up, making a sacrifice, like the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. You choose to make a sacrifice in the six weeks leading up to Easter so that you have this kind of constant reminder in your life because you've, you've given up something. And that gives you this constant reminder of what Jesus did on the cross. And it's a way to kind of focus your prayers and, and focus your mind. And the pastor and I decided um, many, many months ago, after our Easter plans for 2020 got scrapped, because, well, you were there, you were, you were in 2020, you know why they got scrapped. But we began to talk about what if we each gave something up for Lent. Not as a way to draw attention to ourselves, not as a way to walk around the community and say, hey, look, I'm a really good pastor. This is what I'm doing. But just as a way to focus ourselves on God. And then it was just kind of laid upon our heart to challenge you guys to join us. Pastor last week said that he is going to give up some television time and he is going to make a concentrated effort to read his Bible, Genesis through Revelation, through the six weeks of Lent. I have decided that I am going to give up meat during Lent. Now, if you know me, you know this is a sacrifice. I'm not making a joke. I like to eat. Even if you don't know me that well, you know that about me just by looking at me. I like to eat. This is going to represent a big dietary change for me. This is going to give me a lot of opportunities to focus on God. And I have decided that this is going to be a prayerful thing. And I am not saying that your diet is going to affect your prayer life. But I'm saying for me, I am going to make this dietary change. Because what I am going to do as I struggle with this dietary change in my life, on Sundays I am going to be praying for Fresh Start Fellowship every time I struggle, every time I'm hungry, every time I'm less than excited about a plate full of salad or vegetables, I am going to pray for Fresh Start Fellowships on Sunday. For Fresh Start Fellowship on Sundays. On Mondays, I'm going to pray for students in our community. And Tuesdays, I'm going to pray for church families, for the specific families in our church. Wednesdays, I'm going to pray for the other ministries in this community. Thursdays, I'm going to pray for all the unsaved and all the lost people that I know by name. Don't call me on Thursdays. It's going to be a long list. 
I know a lot of people. On Fridays, I'm going to pray for our culture and our country. And on Saturdays, I'm going to pray for the, all the different prayer requests that I've come across that week. So I'm not giving up meat to be spiritual. I'm giving up meat to focus my mind on prayer so that I can get on my knees several times a day through the six weeks of Lent and, and make that sacrifice so that I can do a better job of loving the community around me. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. Love one another as I have loved you sacrificially. Church, if we love one another sacrificially, we are doing exactly what Jesus told us to do. Exactly what we need to be doing. Join me in prayer. Lord, I thank you for a for the rain that we have kind of needed. Lord, I thank you for the, the warmer weather. So many parts of the country are, are having blizzards this weekend, and, and we are not. Lord, I thank you for the family and the friends that we have. I thank you for the opportunities that we have in our lives to smile, to laugh. Lord, I, I thank you for the challenges that we have. We don't enjoy our challenges. Well, Lord, I thank you for that opportunity to put our eyes on you when we are challenged. Lord, I pray that this coming week that we would recognize the opportunities to live sacrificially for those around us. I pray for the courage to live sacrificially. I pray for the wisdom to know how to sacrifice and what to sacrifice. And Lord, I pray that any result of that is glory to you and not to us. Because we don't serve you for us. We serve you because of who you are and because of what you have done. You first loved us, so we love you. Lord, I pray that you will get us all home safely, that you will give us a, a week that is better than last week. I pray that we will see you work in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors and friends this week. Lord, I pray all this in your son's name. Amen.